You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So with that said, today is a special day in the life of our church family because it's our birthday. It's our birthday. Uh, Today, August the 23rd, we are celebrating 11 years of life for our church family. 11 years of the sustaining grace of God in our life as a church. You know, when I just think back over the years uh, and tell the story of Stonegate, it's, it's really the, the, the story of year after year of the extraordinary work of God in our church, of miracle after miracle after miracle of the Lord um, on our behalf. And I, you know, I don't know how many of y'all remember a few years ago, we uh, rented a huge tent and uh, it was about right here where we are on this property and we had our groundbreaking service. Y'all remember that? Uh, those who were here several years ago? And on that uh, ground, or in that groundbreaking service at the end, we gave away these stones. Y- y'all remember that? Uh, it's fun to go into homes just throughout our church family and to walk in and oftentimes see these stones in living rooms and in houses just as a reminder. And if you remember that the kind of the basis for giving these out on that uh, particular Sunday several years ago came out of this passage that you just heard read a few minutes ago out of Joshua chapter four. Now think about the context of Joshua chapter four. The people of God have been wandering around in the the wilderness for 40 years, Not, not just a few months, 40 years because of their disobedience and their unwillingness to risk for Jesus' sake, they were wandering for, for 40 years. And in the wilderness, 40 years, the sustaining grace of God met them. If you remember their life in the wilderness, every day they would wake up and there would be fresh manna from God that had just poured out of the sky. That, that's amazing, isn't it? Uh, there were moments where they were thirsty and the Lord would uh, cause water to to gush forth from rocks. That that is the extraordinary work of God. It was just the grace of God sustaining them. God, their God was with them in the wilderness. And then finally, after 40 years, it was time for the people of God to come into the land that God had promised them. And so the priests led the way and they carried the ark of the Lord across the Jordan River. So just imagine that the priests are are carrying the ark and they step into the Jordan and this amazing thing happens. The Jordan River stops up and, and the people of God, numbering in the millions, by the way, cross over the Jordan River on dry land. Now that would be a day to, to witness, wouldn't it? And they get to the other side and God calls then a leader from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to grab a stone and to stack stones on the banks of the Jordan River. Now, why would God ask 12 leaders from the 12 tribes of Israel to do that? Well, this passage in Joshua 4 answers the question in verses 6 and 7. The scriptures tell us, here's why, that this may be a sign among you. God wanted to put a sign among the people of God as to what he had just done. I'm going to put a sign among you so that when your children ask in in a time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Now you as parents and you as the people of God, you get to tell them. Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. 
When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So why the rocks? Well, in short, it was to help the people of God remember. And church, Jesus loves for his people to remember, to reflect back upon the faithfulness of God, to bring to mind his extraordinary work on their behalf. Jesus loves his people to remember. Now, with that in view, on our 11th birthday, I want to look back and reflect upon some of what the Lord has taught us over the last 11 years. Some of the lessons that we have been able to learn as we have journeyed with the Lord together. And in a lot of ways, I just want these sort of lessons to function as memorial stones in our life today, just as a reminder. Uh, we get to, to pass some of these places again, and we get to look and, and see that stack of stones over there, that those stones stacked up as a way of saying, hey, hey, let's remember some of what the Lord has done, some of what the Lord has taught us. Let's revisit some of those things today. So in, that, in light of that, I, I want to offer five pastoral reflections. Five pastoral reflections over some of what the Lord has taught us as a church family over the last 11 years. Five pastoral reflections. Here's the first. Reflection number one. Jesus has taught us that joy has a name. And ironically, Jesus has taught us that joy's name is Jesus. That's what the scriptures show us, that yes, joy has a name, and its name is Jesus. There has been a myth that I've been trying to destroy over about two decades of ministry. And this is a myth that when you come out of the womb, you come out of the womb believing this myth. I came out of the womb believing it, and our culture, um, in a million different ways, reinforces the myth. And the myth is that it's either Jesus or joy. Take your pick, but you can only have one. It's either Jesus or joy. It's follow Jesus and forsake your joy, or it's follow joy and forsake Jesus. But those are your options. You can't have both, so you're going to have to choose between Jesus or joy. I spent about eight years doing student ministry, and in the depths of the night, I still have some flashbacks. And so about eight years doing that. But you know what I found in eight years of doing student ministry? That the main part of my job was trying to convince students that this is a myth. Uh, trying to convince students that it's not Jesus or joy. Uh, trying to convince students over and over again in a million different ways that in the scriptures it's not Jesus or joy, but it's Jesus as your joy. That, that's what the scriptures show us that it's Jesus as your joy. You know, over the last two decades of ministry, I have be, just begun to deeply identify with Paul as he's talking to the Corinthian church. And he says, um, church, I want you to know what my role is in your life. He's, he's in some ways defining the work of pastoring. And here's how he defines the work of, of pastoring. He says that, that, that we, your, your pastors, Corinthian church, we are working with you for your joy. That's what we're doing. As your pastors, we're waking up every day trying to think about how can we increase your joy? How can we hold Jesus, the, the giver of all joy, in front of you so you can experience more of him and the joy that comes from him? We are working with you for your joy. This is, this is the role of your pastors. 
This is what I get up thinking about. This is what your pastors get up thinking about. We are working with you for your joy. Now, why is that the role of a pastor? Well, it's because the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation offer this invitation. It's the invitation to come and get your joy in Jesus. And I just wonder if you think about God that way. Is this how you think about Jesus as a person to be enjoyed? Do you think about him like that? You know, all of God's good gifts, and God gives us so many incredible gifts. He gives us food and kids and marriage and jobs and intimacy and success. And uh, there's just so many different things that the Lord gifts his sons and daughters. But the Bible shows us that all of God's gifts are appetizers of joy but that Jesus himself is the main course. He is the main course of joy. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, you, you, talking to God, you make known to me the path of life. God, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. That The psalmist is, is trying to alert us and, and teach us and show us that Jesus is a person to be enjoyed. This is why Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Or in the words of Jesus in John 6, 35, Jesus says to us, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. Church, God is not against your joy. God, the happiest being in the universe, comes to us and says, no, I want to share my overflowing joy with you. That's what I want. So, so come to me and, and, and experience the fullness of joy. Come and drink from the river of my delights, as the psalmist says. Come and, and taste and see that I am good. Or come and enjoy the bread of life to satisfy your hungry hearts. Uh, come and enjoy the water to quench the thirst of your, of your uh, thirsty souls. Uh, th this is the invitation of the scriptures. God has planted in every human heart a hunger for happiness. And that hunger has made every human being a hunter for joy. You wake up every day hunting for it. I wake up every day hunting for it. This is just human nature. And that sort of deeply implanted hunger from the Lord that's put us on the hunt for joy, Jesus has designed you to work that way so that it would lead you to him, the giver of it. The, the main course of joy. That, that hunger for joy is meant to take us to God. This is why Augustine tells us that, he says, talking to God, he says, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Some of us came in today with restless hearts. And do you know what your heart is looking for today? Jesus. And you're stuffing a million different things into it that will never satisfy your heart. Your hearts are going to be restless until they find their rest in him. Or you could uh, take it in uh, the parable that Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 44. It's a one verse parable. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. So he's just telling us um, what life with God is like. So he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, 
which a man found and then covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. He lets go of everything in his life so that he can go and buy the field. Now that is a picture of conversion. That's the picture when you make that decisive move toward God for the first time, offering your life to him. It's a picture of a human being getting saved by Jesus. It's a picture of belief in the Bible. And this parable is showing us that this is what belief looks like. Jesus is the treasure in the field. We, we find the treasure of Jesus. And Jesus becomes so valuable to us when we find him, when our hearts um, open up to him and we see for the first time the beauty and wonder of who Jesus is. He becomes so valuable that we will gladly let go of everything else in life so that we can have Jesus. That's conversion. That, that, that is us finding Jesus, our joy. And this is part of what the Bible is teaching us here, that following Jesus will cost us many things in life. If you've been following Jesus for long, you know that it will cost you many things, but ultimate joy isn't one of them. It won't cost you that because Jesus is our joy. This is why one of our marks of a disciple is that a disciple enjoys Jesus. This is why we constantly urge you to delight daily in Jesus by opening up the scriptures and feasting on Jesus in the scriptures, then turning what you're learning there in the scriptures up toward God in prayer to delight daily in Jesus. You know, church family, if I think about life in a fallen world, one of the things I know about life in this fallen world is that it's depleting, that it's hard, that it's constantly taking from us. But Jesus, he, he is this inexhaustible well of refreshment. And he is inviting every one of us today to come and find our joy in him, to come and enjoy him, to be refreshed by him. And one of the things, when I look back over the last 11 years, I have such a deep gratitude to the Lord for taking um, this out of, out of an abstract theoretical way of, of us talking about finding our joy in Jesus to an experiential reality in our life. I remember a few years ago sitting down with a guy uh, that had been coming to Stonegate for probably six or seven months, and it was so interesting listening to him. He, he said, you know, um, my whole life when I've thought about relating to Jesus, I have thought about, yeah, I want to agree with Jesus. I want to think rightly about Jesus. Yes to all of that. I want to I have right thoughts about who God is. Yes, I want to be a biblical Christian. Yes, I want all of that. But, but the idea of my heart coming open to Jesus and me experiencing more of God, joy in God. The, the, thought of, the thought of me waking up today and thinking, I want to enjoy the person of Jesus. I have never thought about God like that. The, the idea of, of the, the Bible commanding us to delight ourselves in the Lord. I've never thought about God that way. And, and it's been so um, incredible for me to watch Dozens and dozens, hundreds of people begin to open up to, let's go chase after Jesus. Let's go chase after our joy in Jesus for that to become an experiential reality in our hearts. What a grace from the Lord. 
I'm so grateful that, that God has shown us it's not Jesus or joy. No, it's Jesus as our joy. Reflection number two. Reflection number one, joy has a name. Joy's name is Jesus. Reflection number two. Jesus has shown us as a church family over the last 11 years that we never leave our need. That we never leave our need. You know, in so many ways, life with Jesus is an upside down sort of life. And to illustrate that, think about parenting for a moment. Um, when you uh, as parents have a, a little baby, they come out of the womb, isn't it amazing how dependent a little baby is? They are ill-equipped to do life as a little baby, right? They are 100% dependent upon you for food, for protection, for shelter. Without a parent or someone there, a little baby wouldn't make it for long, right? They, they are completely dependent. And part of what your job as a parent is, is to take a child from absolute dependence into independence where they can actually exist and survive, maybe even clean their room without you telling them to clean their room, right? I mean, this is, this is sort of the job of a parent, to take a child and to move them from dependence to independence. But isn't it amazing how the Christian life is the exact opposite of that? When we come out of the womb, we are, we are totally opposed to God. We operate in an independent way. We distrust God. The last thing we want when we come out of the womb is to need God for anything. And the journey of the Christian life is to move from absolute independence to a posture of dependence upon the Lord. That is the journey of the Christian life. The Christian life is much more like the life of Benjamin Button. Do you remember that guy's life? Uh, he lived his life in the reverse. The older he got, uh, the, more, uh, the more dependent and like a child he became. That's the Christian life. Uh, one, one kind of reliable way to measure your maturity in Jesus is to ask yourself this, que uh, this question. How dependent do I feel? Like it's Monday morning, you open up your life, your, your eyes, you're about to encounter a new day. How dependent do I feel when my eyes come open and a day is about to be lived? That is one reliable way you can measure spiritual maturity because our life with Jesus starts with need and need stays in it. We never outgrow our need. We never leave our need. Now, there's a lot of ways to show this in the scripture, but one way is just to take the word save, just that word saved in the scriptures, to take that word and, and to watch the various ways that it's used. And if you watch that word used in the scriptures, what you're going to find is it's used in three tenses. So one way the word save is used in the scriptures is in a past tense. And it refers back to the gospel saving us from the penalty of sin. But it's used in a past tense way. As an example, Paul uses it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. When Paul says, for by grace you have been, past tense, have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. 
Now, when most people think about the good news of Jesus, this is how we think about it. It was that moment in our past that we needed the gospel so that we could then come into and enter into the family of God. Now, that is a right way of thinking about the good news of Jesus. There is a past tense reality, and it is the way we come into the family of God. But the problem is, for many, that is the only way we think about the good news of Jesus, as a past tense reality. And then after we get into the family of God, we sort of move on to bigger and brighter things uh, within, uh, you know, God. But this is not the way the scriptures talk about our need. Our need for the good news of Jesus is not just a past tense reality, it's also a present tense reality. This is why that word saved is often used in a present tense way, not just past tense, but but in a present tense way. This is the way Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preach to you. And then he goes on, which you received. Now that was a past tense receiving. So it's done, it's saving work in the past, but then he goes on to say, in which you stand. Now we're to the present tense. And by which you are being saved. Present tense. It's not just in your past you're being saved. No, like right now you are being saved by the good news of Jesus. He goes on to say, if you hold fast to the word, I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Now, do do you see that? That that word saved is not just a past tense, being saved from the penalty of sin, that sort of way of being used. It's also a present tense word. You are also, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are currently right now being saved by the good news of Jesus from the power of sin in your life. The good news of Jesus is not just something you needed in the past. It is also something you need in the present. If you're a follower of Jesus, you you need the good news of Jesus as much today, however long you've been following Jesus, you need it as much today as the first day you started following Jesus. We never outgrow our need. We never leave our need. It's not just the power of God. The gospel is not just the power of God to bring us into the family. It's also the power of God to change us into a person who resembles the family to change us into the image of our big brother, Jesus. Now just think about your own life right now and think about an area where it is obvious that you need change. I've got those areas, you've got those areas, just an area where it's like, God, we need to change and look more like our big brother, Jesus. Whatever that issue is, more than you need a new habit in your life, your heart needs to to come open to new realities within the good news of Jesus. Your heart needs to see and savor particular aspects and areas of the good news of Jesus that apply to that particular area of your life. That's the main thing that you need. But that word saved isn't just a past tense reality. It isn't just a present tense reality. It's also a future tense reality. The gospel will save you from the presence of sin finally and fully in your life in the future. This is how Paul uses it in Romans chapter 13. Paul says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. Now, why is that? He goes on to say, for salvation, for your saving is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Do you see that? We just never leave off our need. 
We never leave our need. We needed it in the past. We need it in the present. And we need the good news of Jesus in our future. This is why we often say a disciple of Jesus needs the gospel. And one of the joys of the last 11 years has literally been watching hundreds of people come to Stonegate with a very truncated view of the good news of Jesus. Uh, When they thought about the good news of Jesus, it was totally past tense. That's what I needed way back in the day so that I could come into the family of God because I needed to be saved from the penalty of my sin. And for the Lord to open them up and to see, no, I didn't just need the good news of Jesus then, I need it now in this area of my life, in that area of my life. I just feel so dependent upon the good news of Jesus. I have sat across from countless men in redemption groups and watched the, just watch Jesus open up a human heart to their present need of his gospel. It has been such an amazing thing to watch that happen. Countless men and women see that. For for the gospel to go from, as Tim Keller says, the ABC of Christianity, it's just what I needed to kind of start off in the Christian life. No, to the to the A to Z of Christianity, for it to be the all-encompassing need that I have every single day of my life. What an amazing thing that's been. We never leave our need. Here's the third reflection. When I look back over the last 11 years, a lesson that the Lord has taught our church family is that the church really matters. That the church really, really, really matters. Now, I want to define that word church. When I say the word church, I don't just mean a building. I mean a body of believers overseen by pastors that you belong to that you are connected to, that's a local church. And we all need a church family to live among. We all need our lives submitted to Jesus, the great shepherd, and to pastors under shepherd that he has given us for our protection. We we all need that. Now I wanna just focus on that word need. Why is it that we need a local church family, a local body of believers? And just to, to be frank with you, many people in our culture don't think you do. I would say that the sort of normative way that most people feel about the church in our culture is it's a very take it or leave it sort of a thing. Um, If it's there, then great, but if it's not, I'm gonna be okay. As long as I just sort of have Jesus and me, everything will be okay. And I would just ask you, are you sure about that? Are, Are you sure? I love how one of my pastor friends addresses this. He says, saying that I need Jesus, but I don't need the church is to say, I need Jesus, but not everything Jesus says that I need. To to say that, you know what, just Jesus and me is going to be okay is to say, the the very thing that Jesus says you need, you really don't need. Uh, Think about this in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul calls the church the body of Christ. Now think about what that imagery teaches us, the body of Christ. A part of what that imagery, body of Christ, is teaching us is that we all, as individual parts of a body, need the rest of the body. Uh, let me illustrate it by taking a hand. Uh, let's just say that you're a hand in a body. Now, in a church family, a hand would probably have like the gift of service, 
And it's amazing to watch people with that gifting work in and around our church family. I don't know what we would do without people who had those sort of gifts of service from the Lord. Uh, But let's just say you, the hand, who has uh, the gift of service, come to the conclusion that, you know what, I don't really think I need the rest of the body. I think just Jesus and me, we're going to be okay. I, I, I don't really need the rest of the body. So you take out the knife and you sever yourself, the hand, from the rest of the body. Now, what's going to happen to the hand when it's severed from the body? Well, it's going to fall to the floor, and it is going to wilt and shrivel really quickly, right? It is going to wither really quickly on the floor. Now, why is that? Because a hand needs a wrist, A hand needs an arm, it needs a shoulder, it needs a torso, it needs a lot of other things for the hand to be healthy, amen? Do you see the imagery? This is part of what the body imagery is showing us, that a hand cannot survive on its own. The the body imagery is showing us that you, you will never be all that you've been created to be unless you are connected to the body. You need a local body of believers. I need a local body of believers to be what God has created me to be. The church really matters. It matters if you want to see yourself clearly. It matters if you want to live in a safe way and not vulnerably. It matters if you want to become all that Jesus would have you be. This is why we often say a disciple lives in community, and that community is called the church. The church really matters. One of my joys over the last 11 years has been watching the body do what the body does. Watching the church be the church. It's been an amazing journey watching that. I remember years ago, um, we got a call from one of the gals in our church who had just gotten devastating news. It was gut-wrenching for her. And another guy and I, we jumped in the car, we drove over to her house, and uh, when we walked in, there were already several other ladies from her home group already inside of her house, just loving on her and ministering to her. Um, As we're leaving, another gal was coming in with just a, a bag of groceries, and this gal was coming to cook dinner and to stay the night with her. It's just the church doing what the church does. And listen, if you're not connected as a part of the body, like you connected into a local body of believers, you are missing out on one of God's greatest graces in your life. Is a church messy? Yes. But is it also beautiful? Yes. Get your life connected. You're just missing out on so much of the richness and the protection and the grace of God in your life. Uh, You know, when I think about uh, men and women across our church family using their gifts to serve others in our church family, uh, when that is happening across a a body of believers like this, part of what's happening in the middle of that uh, is men and women making the love of God felt, visible, and experienced by others. Uh, Years ago, a, a guy in our church family sent this text message to another guy in our church. And here was the message. He said, your friendship and guidance are one of the reasons I know God loves me and cares for me. Isn't that an amazing thing to think that when a church is operating like a church should think about, like when you're loving other people, ministering to other people, using the gifts that God has given you inside of a body, connected to a body, 
You are making the love of God felt and experienced and, and seen in another human being's life. It says your friendship and guidance are one of the reasons I know God loves me and cares for me. Thanks for all you do. You have been heavy on my heart and I've been praying for God's joy to be overwhelming to you. I love you, brother. See, this is what embedding your life into a church family is doing. It's making the invisible love of God visible to people. The church really, really matters. This is one of the things that the Lord has shown us over the last 11 years. Reflection number four. Jesus has shown us the necessity of living now for what will matter most then. The necessity of living now for what will matter most then. Have you noticed this about your life? That there is a constant pull in your life toward triviality. Everything in your life is seducing you away from what really matters to the things that really don't matter. Um, your social media is doing that for you. Your um, Facebook feed is doing that for you. Your Instagram feed is doing that for you. Your news feed is doing that for you. Virtually everything on TV is seducing you away from what matters to the things that don't matter. We are, we are swamped with the insignificant, with the trivial. It just, it comes at us in a million different ways every single day of our life. To live for what matters is a miracle of God. It will require a miracle in your life if you're going to live for what matters. But miracles often have means. And there are some means that God uses to do that miracle, to, to, to get us out of the trivial and into the things that actually matter most. And Paul shows us one of those when he's writing to uh, the Corinthian church. And I'm not even sure exactly what this means when Paul says it, because it is an abstract, crazy thing that he's about to say. But when he's talking to the Corinthian church, he says, uh, there's been a moment in my life where Paul says, I was caught up into the third heavens. Now, I don't exactly know what the third heavens are, but I think at a minimum we could say this. It was a moment where Jesus graced Paul with a sneak peek into the future. He graced Paul with a glimpse into the future, into what's awaiting all the sons and daughters of God. And one of the things that did for Paul is it changed his life forever. It's one of the means that God used to move him from the trivial, insignificant things that we so often spend our life on into the things that matter most. So can we just go there for a moment? Um, would you just humor me for just a few minutes and just close your eyes there where you are? And in your mind's eye, can you go 120 years into the future? Just picture that. Life, 120 years from right now. In 120 years from now, every single person that you know on this planet, your neighbors, your kids, your parents, your friends, your acquaintances, the person you bump into at the grocery, every single person you know will have passed through this life and be in the next life. Every single person you know will have stood before the risen Jesus and a verdict will have been pronounced over their lives. 
For those in Jesus covered by the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the verdict will read over their lives, not guilty, and they will be invited into the incredibly bright future that God has prepared for them. For all those not in Jesus, for all those who die in their refusal of Jesus, the verdict will read guilty, guilty, and they will be ushered into forever, forever, apart from God in all that is good. There is no third option. It's either heaven or it's hell for every single person. Go ahead and look up, and I just want you to linger out there 120 years into your future and, and ask yourself the question, in 120 years from now, what's going to really matter? In, in 120 years from now, what, what will seem significant then? And then take a look at your life. Are the things that are going to seem significant then, are they in your life now? Are you giving your life to these things now? And if I had to say one thing, there's a lot of things we could say that will be significant then when we stand before Jesus, but if I had to say one thing, it would be this, disciple-making. Uh, Disciple-making. Uh, th this will seem so significant in 120 years from now. Go, therefore, and make disciples while you can. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When, when you linger out there 120 years into the future and then you, you work back, it makes me want to give my life to what's actually going to matter then. And what's going to matter then, there's other things we could say, but what, what is going to matter to me most then is that I'm giving my life for people to meet Jesus and to grow up and mature in Jesus. That I'm giving my life to these things. That I'm giving my life to multiplication, to making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So just picture your life 120 years from now again. Just picture yourself, if you're in Christ, you are with Jesus in the place that he has prepared for you. And you know what's going to be amazing in 120 years from now? You're going to be meeting spiritual grandkids and spiritual great-grandkids and spiritual great-great-grandkids. You're going to be meeting them. Just imagine that moment. You make a disciple now, right now. You're giving your life to making disciples. And then those disciples start making disciples. And then you die. You're gone from here. But you know what didn't die? Disciple making. That hasn't died. Disciples are still making disciples who are still making disciples. And it's like throwing a rock into the pond. Long after the rock has sunk to the bottom, the ripples are still going out, right? Right? That's disciple making. And in a hundred years from now, in 200 years from now, in a thousand years from now, you know what's going to be amazing? You getting to celebrate in heaven, the place God's prepared for you with Jesus. You getting to celebrate your spiritual descendants. You getting to see the fruit that has grown from that little disciple-making tree that you planted. You're getting to meet spiritual grandkids and great-grandkids and great-grandkids for hundreds and hundreds of years. Can you imagine that? 
There's just, in a thousand years from now, that is going to feel so significant. You getting to stand there at the gates of heaven as a person is ushered in that's in your line of disciple making. What an amazing reality. Amen to that? What an amazing thing to think about in a thousand years from now. And one of the things that I'm just asking the Lord to do in our church family over the next decade is to deepen that ache for those who don't know Jesus, to deepen the ache, to gift us with the ability to plead with tears to Jesus to rescue our neighbors, to, to rescue our kids, to rescue our sons and daughters, our parents and friends, that Jesus would, would take us to the brink of eternity, much like he did for Paul. And there he would show us what will matter most. And then we, as God's people, would give our life to the things that matter most. Uh, disciple making, uh, and giving our life to people who are far from Jesus, so they can meet Jesus. And then giving our life to people to help them mature and grow up in Jesus. Oh, that God would do that. That God would teach us the necessity of living now for what will matter most then. And I'll close and we'll finish here. Lesson number five. Jesus has taught us that risk is right. And here we are 11 years later. And I would just say it this way. Jesus is showing us that risk is still right. And it will always be right for God's people. The scriptures show us that a life of faith requires risk. As a pastor of a generation ago said it, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. That's how you spell faith. Because that's what it feels like experientially to walk by faith. It's risky. It's Esther. The people of God were facing extermination, and Esther responds by saying, yep, I'll go see the king, even though I might die doing it, but if I perish, I perish. It's risk. It's her embracing a life of faith. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who won't bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And when confronted, do you remember what they say? They, they look back at the king, the most powerful person on the planet at the time. And they say, if this be so, if we're thrown into the fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but, but if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, that is embracing risk. And not every risk ends well. Take John the Baptist. Uh, he took a risk by, by speaking a truth to Herod, and it cost him his life. If you read uh, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11, you've got this beautiful chapter of the hall of faith and you've got these incredible things that God is doing as people walk in faith and so many of those stories turn out amazing. But others suffered mocking and flogging, the author of Hebrews tells us, and even chains and imprisonment. But, but can we just come to grips with this uh, church family? What makes risk right is not that every risk turns out well. What makes risk right is that risk reflects the worth of God. It is us saying, we will let go of anything so we can have more of that God, more of, of, of Jesus. And church, when I think about what, what are the various things keeping us back from so much of what God wants for us in our life, there's many things to talk about, but at the top of that list is just fear. 
a craving for temporal safety, that seductive sort of play it safe voice, that, that voice that says, feel free to like Jesus, even love Jesus, but don't you dare put yourself in a bind where you actually need Jesus in your life. It's that play it safe voice. But on the other side of that play it safe voice is Jesus. And throughout the scriptures, Jesus is inviting us into risk. He, he's saying, come and, and risk for my sake. Church, very little of significance happens in this life apart from risk. And I want the Lord to do amazing things in your life, in my life, in our church's life. And here's the great thing about that. We don't have to be amazing people for the Lord to do amazing things with us and through us. But we do have to be willing to risk, to, to put it on the line for Jesus' sake. So just look at your life right now. Where is the next risky step of faith the Lord's asking you to take. And if you don't have any right now, plead and just ask the Lord to show you, what is that next step of faith for me? What is it that you want from me next? God, I, I wanna live by faith, so show me. What is that next risky step of faith? And when I look back over the last 11 years, there are amazing stories inside of our church family. Countless adoptions. We just celebrated the Olsons a couple of weeks ago. They are about to welcome into their family two teenagers, adopting two teenagers. That's an amazing story of risk. And listen, when I think of adoptions, it's, it's not that every one of those turns out easy. Most of those are so, so difficult. But even there in the difficulty, in the hard church, we believe that every risk we take for Jesus is worth it. And we believe that because we know that every risk will be rewarded in the end. Every single one of them. So, so we embrace risk. There's been financial moments of people giving to Jesus in such generous ways, in, in ways that they would have never have dreamed they would be giving to Jesus. There's been vocational moments where Jesus says, no to this thing that you've been doing for the last 30 years. I want you to do that thing. And people in our church family saying, yes, Jesus, I'll do that if you ask. There's been missionary moments. My, my friend Aaron, a Dallasite, kind of just life in a suburban safe world. And Jesus says, no, I want you to uproot your life. And I want you to give your life to, to taking Jesus to the unknown parts of the world in Southeast Asia. I, I oftentimes just wake up and, and consider how different my life is from his. And just thank God for him being willing to embrace those sort of risks. There's been thousands of moments of evangelism over the last 11 years where people in our church have opened up their mouth, talked about Jesus, and Jesus has used that moment for the rescue and salvation of another person. We're going to get to celebrate some of those next week in a baptism Sunday. It's going to be an amazing day. But church, one of my greatest fears for us is that one day, someday, we as a church would begin to say no to the next risky step of faith. And the reason I'm scared to death of that moment is I know that as soon as we start saying no to Jesus, we are saying yes to the first step toward our death as a church. And we don't want that, do we? And we want to say open-hearted to Jesus, just ready to do everything that he sets in front of us. Amen? So will you bow with me there where you are? I want to give you just a moment to listen to the Lord, to allow him to 
wipe away the things that would not be beneficial for you this morning, but to plant deeply in you those few things that he wants you to take today, to receive from him today. So just ask the Lord, God, God, what is it that you, what is it that you want me to hear, respond to, own, repent of? And for some of us, the Lord has arranged through a thousand providential circumstances that you would be in this room today or watching there online today. And this is your moment to take that decisive step toward Jesus, where you turn from your sin and you throw your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, where you take that first step of faith toward Jesus and you hold your life up to him and say, God, I'm offering my life to you. Here I am, save me. I am trusting Jesus. And you know what God loves to do to rescue us when we do that? When we come to him with the empty hands of faith, it's in the best way you know how you can pray offering your life to him there, there where you are. So God, would you do work in us today? God, would you help us not miss this moment and what you would have for us? God, through the power of your spirit, God, would you change us? Would you lead us? Would you show us? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.